Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road, and our continuation of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story, A Study in Scarlet. Today, Part 2, Chapter 2, The Flower of Utah. This is not the place to commemorate the trials and privations endured by the immigrant Mormons before they came to their final haven. From the shores of the Mississippi to the western slopes of the Rocky Mountains, they had struggled on with a constancy almost unparalleled in history. The savage man and the savage beast, hunger, thirst, fatigue, and disease, every impediment which nature could place in the way, had all been overcome with Anglo-Saxon tenacity. Yet the long journey and the accumulated terrors had shaken the hearts of the stoutest among them. There was not one who did not sink upon his knees in heartfelt prayer when they saw the broad valley of Utah bathed in the sunlight beneath them, and learned from the lips of their leader that this was the promised land, and that these virgin acres were to be theirs forevermore. Young speedily proved himself to be a skillful administrator as well as a resolute chief. Maps were drawn and charts prepared, in which the future city was sketched out. All around, farms were apportioned and allotted in proportion to the standing of each individual. The tradesman was put to his trade and the artisan to his calling. In the town, Streets and squares sprang up as if by magic. In the country there was draining and hedging, planting and clearing, until the next summer saw the whole country golden with the wheat crop. Everything prospered in the strange settlement. Above all, the great temple which they had erected in the center of the city grew ever taller and larger. From the first blush of dawn until the closing of the twilight, the clatter of the hammer and the rasp of the saw was never absent from the monument which the immigrants erected to him who had led them safe through many dangers. The two castaways, John Ferrier and the little girl who had shared his fortunes and had been adopted as his daughter, accompanied the Mormons to the end of their great pilgrimage. Little Lucy Ferrier was born along pleasantly enough in Elder Stangerson's wagon, a retreat which she shared with the Mormons' three wives and with his son, a headstrong, forward boy of twelve. Having rallied, with the elasticity of childhood, from the shock caused by her mother's death, she soon became a pet with the women and reconciled herself to this new life in her moving, canvas-covered home. In the meantime, Ferrier, having recovered from his privations, distinguished himself as a useful guide and an indefatigable hunter. So rapidly did he gain the esteem of his new companions that when they reached the end of their wanderings, it was unanimously agreed that he should be provided with this large, and as fertile, attractive land as any of the settlers, with the exception of Young himself, and of Stangerson, Kemble, Johnston, and Drebber, who were the four principal elders. On the farm thus acquired, John Ferrier built himself a substantial log house, which received so many additions in succeeding years that it grew into a roomy villa. He was a man of practical turn of mind, keen in his dealings and skillful with his hands. His iron constitution enabled him to work morning and evening at improving and tilling his lands. Hence it came about that his farm and all that belonged to him prospered exceedingly. In three years he was better off than his neighbors. In six he was well-to-do. In nine he was rich. And in twelve there were not half a dozen men in the whole of Salt Lake City who could compare with him. From the great inland sea to the distant Wasatch Mountains, there was no name better known than that of John Ferrier. There was one way and only one in which he offended the susceptibilities of his co-religionists. 
no argument or persuasion could ever induce him to set up a female establishment after the manner of his companions. He never gave reasons for this persistent refusal, but contented himself by resolutely and inflexibly adhering to his determination. There were some who accused him of lukewarmness in his adopted religion, and others who put it down to greed of wealth and reluctance to incur expense. Others, again, spoke of some early love affair, and of a fair-haired girl who had pined away on the shores of the Atlantic. Whatever the reason, Ferrier remained strictly celibate. In every other respect, he conformed to the religion of the young settlement, and gained the name of being an orthodox and straight-walking man. Lucy Ferrier grew up within the log house, and assisted her adopted father in all his undertakings. The keen air of the mountains and the balsamic odor of the pine trees took the place of nurse and mother to the young girl. As year succeeded to year, she grew taller and stronger, her cheek more ruddy, and her step more elastic. Many a wayfarer upon the high road which ran by Ferrier's farm felt long-forgotten thoughts revive in their mind as they watched her lithe, girlish figure tripping to the wheat-fields, or met her mounted upon her father's mustang, and managing it with all the ease and grace of a true child of the West. And so the bud blossomed into a flower, and the year which saw her father the richest of the farmers left her as fair a specimen of American girlhood as could be found in the whole Pacific Slope. It was not the father, however, who first discovered that the child had developed into the woman. It seldom is in such cases. That mysterious change is too subtle and too gradual to be measured by dates. Least of all does the maiden herself know it until the tone of a voice or the touch of a hand sets her heart thrilling within her, and she learns, with a mixture of pride and of fear, that a new and larger nature has awoken within her. There are few who cannot recall that day and remember the one little incident which heralded the dawn of a new life. In the case of Lucy Ferrier, the occasion was serious enough in itself, apart from its future influence on her destiny, and that of many besides. It was a warm June morning, and the Latter-day Saints were as busy as the bees whose hive they've chosen for their emblem. In the fields and in the streets rose the same hum of human industry. Down the dusty high roads defiled long streams of heavily laden mules, all heading to the west, for the gold fever had broken out in California, and the overland route lay through the city of the elect. There, too, were droves of sheep and bullocks coming in from the outlying pasture lands, and trains of tired immigrants, men and horses equally weary of their interminable journey. Through all this the motley assemblage, threading her way with the skill of an accomplished rider, there galloped Lucy Ferrier, her fair face flushed with the exercise and her long chestnut hair floating out behind her. She had a commission from her father in the city, and was dashing in as she had done many a time before, with all the fearlessness of youth, thinking only of her task and how it was to be performed. The travel-stained adventurers gazed after her in astonishment, and even the unemotional Indians, journeying in with their pelties, relaxed their accustomed stoicism as they marveled at the beauty of the pale-faced maiden. She had reached the outskirts of the city when she found the road blocked by a great drove of cattle, driven by a half-dozen wild-looking herdsmen from the plains. In her impatience, she endeavored to pass this obstacle by pushing her horse into what appeared to be a gap. Scarcely had she got fairly into it, however, before the beasts closed in behind her, and she found herself completely embedded in the moving stream of fierce-eyed, long-horned cattle. Accustomed as she was to deal with cattle, 
she was not alarmed at her situation, but took advantage of every opportunity to urge her horse on in the hopes of pushing her way through the cavalcade. Unfortunately, the horns of one of the creatures, either by accident or design, came in violent contact with the flank of her mustang, and excited it to madness. In an instant it reared up upon its hind legs with a snort of rage, and pranced and tossed in a way that would have unseated any but a most skillful rider. The situation was full of peril. Every plunge of the excited horse brought it against the horns again, and goaded it to fresh madness. It was all that the girl could do to keep herself in the saddle, yet a slip would mean a terrible death under the hooves of the unwieldy and terrified animals. Unaccustomed to sudden emergencies, her head began to swim, and her grip upon the bridle to relax. Choked by the rising cloud of dust and by the steam from the struggling creatures, she might have abandoned her efforts in despair, but for a kindly voice at her elbow which assured her of assistance. At the same moment a sinewy brown hand caught the frightened horse by the curb, and forcing away through the drove, soon brought her to the outskirts. "'You're not hurt, I hope, miss,' said her preserver, respectfully. She looked up at his dark, fierce face and laughed saucily. "'I'm awful frightened,' she said naively. "'Whoever would have thought that Pancho would have been so scared by a lot of cows?' "'Thank God you kept your seat,' the other said earnestly. He was a tall, savage-looking young fellow, mounted on a powerful roan horse, and clad in the rough dress of a hunter, with a long rifle slung over his shoulders. "'I guess you're the daughter of John Ferrier,' he remarked. "'I saw you ride down from his house. "'When you see him, ask him if he remembers the Jefferson Hopes of St. Louis. "'If he's the same farrier, my father and he were pretty close.' "'Hadn't you better come and ask yourself?' she asked demurely. "'The young fellow seemed pleased at the suggestion, and his dark eyes sparkled with pleasure. "'I'll do so,' he said. "'We've been in the mountains for two months, and are not over and above in visiting condition.' He must take us as he finds us. He has a good deal to thank you for, and so have I, she answered. He's awful fond of me. If those cows had jumped on me, he'd have never got over it. Neither would I, said her companion. You? Well, I don't see that it would make much matter to you anyhow. You ain't even a friend of ours. The young hunter's dark face grew so gloomy over this remark that Lucy Ferrier laughed aloud. "'There, I didn't mean that,' she said. "'Of course, you are a friend now. "'You must come and see us. "'Now I must push along, "'or father won't trust me with this business any more. "'Good-bye.' "'Good-bye,' he answered, "'raising his broad sombrero "'and bending over her little hand. "'She wheeled her mustang round, "'gave it a cut with her riding whip, "'and darted away down the broad road "'in a rolling cloud of dust. "'Young Jefferson Hope rode on with his companions,' gloomy and taciturn. He and they had been among the Nevada mountains prospecting for silver, and were returning to Salt Lake City in the hope of raising capital enough to work some loads which they had discovered. He had been as keen as any of them upon the business until this sudden incident had drawn his thoughts into another channel. The sight of the fair young girl, as frank and wholesome as the Sierra breezes, had stirred his volcanic, untamed heart to its very depths. When she had vanished from his sight, he realized that a crisis had come in his life, and that neither silver speculations nor any other questions could ever be of such importance to him as this new and all-absorbing one. The love which had sprung up in his heart was not the sudden, changeable fancy of a boy, 
but rather the wild, fierce passion of a man of strong will and imperious temper. He had been accustomed to succeed in all that he undertook. He swore in his heart that he would not fail in this if human effort and human perseverance could render him successful. He called on John Ferrier that night, and many times again, until his face was a familiar one at the farmhouse. John, cooped up in the valley and absorbed in his work, had had little chance of learning the news of the outside world during the last twelve years. All this Jefferson Hope was able to tell him, and in a style which interested Lucy as well as her father. He had been a pioneer in California, and could narrate many a strange tale of fortunes made and fortunes lost in those wild halcyon days. He had been a scout, too, and a trapper, a silver explorer, and a ranchman. Wherever stirring adventures were to be had, Jefferson Hope had been there in search of them. He soon became a favorite with the old farmer, who spoke eloquently of his virtues. On such occasions, Lucy was silent, but her blushing cheek and her bright, happy eyes showed only too clearly that her young heart was no longer her own. Her honest father may not have observed these symptoms, but they were assuredly not thrown away upon the man who had won her affections. It was a summer evening when he came galloping down the road and pulled up at the gate. She was at the doorway and came down to meet him. He threw the bridle over the fence and strode up the pathway. "'I am off, Lucy,' he said, taking her two hands in his and gazing tenderly down into her face. "'I won't ask you to come with me now, but will you be ready to come when I'm here again?' "'And when will that be?' she asked, blushing and laughing. "'A couple of months, at the outside. I will come and claim you then, my darling. There's no one who can stand between us.' "'And how about father?' she asked. "'He has given his consent, provided we get these minds working all right. I have no fear on that matter.' "'Oh, well, of course, if you and father have arranged it all, there's no more to be said,' she whispered, with her cheek against his broad breast. "'Well, thank God,' he said, hoarsely, stooping and kissing her. "'It is settled, then. The longer I stay, the harder it will be to go. They are waiting for me at the canyon.' Goodbye, my darling, goodbye. In two months you shall see me. He tore himself from her as he spoke, and flinging himself upon his horse, galloped furiously away, never even looking round, as though afraid that his resolution might fail him if he took one glance at what he was leaving. She stood at the gate, gazing after him until he vanished from her sight. Then she walked back into the house, the happiest girl in all of Utah. We'll return to Chapter 3, right after this message from our sponsors. And now back to Part 2, Chapter 3, of A Study in Scarlet, by Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 3, John Ferrier Talks with the Prophet Three weeks had passed since Jefferson Hope and his comrades had departed from Salt Lake City. John Ferrier's heart was sore within him when he thought of the young man's return, and the impending loss of his adopted child. Yet her bright and happy face reconciled him to the arrangement more than any argument could have done. He had always determined, deep down in his resolute heart, that nothing would ever induce him to allow his daughter to wed a Mormon. Such a marriage he regarded as no marriage at all, but as a shame and a disgrace. Whatever he might think of the Mormon doctrines, upon that one point he was inflexible. He had to seal his mouth on the subject, however, for to express an unorthodox opinion 
was a dangerous matter in those days in the land of the saints. Yes, a dangerous matter, so dangerous that even the most saintly dared only whisper their religious opinions with bated breath, lest something which fell from their lips might be misconstrued and bring down a swift retribution upon them. The victims of persecution had now turned persecutors on their own account, and persecutors of the most terrible description. Not the Inquisition of Seville, nor the German Vem Gericht, nor the secret societies of Italy, were ever able to put a more formidable machinery in motion than that which cast a cloud over the state of Utah. Its invisibility, and the mystery which was attached to it, made this organization doubly terrible. It appeared to be omniscient and omnipotent, and yet was neither seen nor heard. The man who held out against the church vanished away, and none knew whether he'd gone or what had befallen him. His wife and his children awaited him at home, but no father ever returned to tell them how he had fared at the hands of his secret judges. A rash word or hasty act was followed by annihilation, and yet none knew what the nature might be of this terrible power which was suspended over them. No wonder that men went about in fear and trembling, and that even in the heart of the wilderness they dared not whisper the doubts which oppressed them. At first this vague and terrible power was exercised only upon the recalcitrants who, having embraced the Mormon faith, wished afterwards to pervert or to abandon it. Soon, however, it took a wider range. The supply of adult women was running short, and polygamy without a female population on which to draw was a barren doctrine indeed. Strange rumors began to be bandied about, rumors of murdered immigrants and rifled camps in regions where Indians had never been seen. Fresh women appeared in the harems of the elders, women who pined and wept and bore upon their faces the traces of an unextinguishable horror. Belated wanderers upon the mountains spoke of gangs of armed men, masked, stealthy, and noiseless, who flitted by them in the darkness. These tales and rumors took substance and shape, and were corroborated and re-corroborated, until they resolved themselves into a definite name. To this day in the lonely reaches of the West, the name of the Danite Band, or the Avenging Angels, is a sinister and ill-omened one. Fuller knowledge of the organization which produced such terrible results served to increase rather than to lessen the horror which it inspired in the minds of men. None knew who belonged to this ruthless society. The names of the participators in the deeds of blood and violence done under the name of religion were kept profoundly secret. The very friend to whom you communicated your misgivings as to the prophet and his mission might be one of those who would come forth at night with fire and sword to exact a terrible reparation. Hence every man feared his neighbor, and none spoke of the things which were nearest his heart. One fine morning John Ferrier was about to set to his wheat fields, when he heard the click of the latch, and looking through the window saw a stout, sandy-haired, middle-aged man coming up the pathway. His heart leapt to his mouth, for this was none other than the great Brigham Young himself. Full of trepidation, for he knew that such a visit boded him little good, Ferrier ran to the door to greet the Mormon chief. The latter, however, received his salutations coldly, and followed him with a stern face into the sitting-room. "'Brother Ferrier,' he said, taking a seat, and eyeing the farmer keenly from under his light-colored eyelashes. "'The true believers have been good friends to you. We picked you up when you were starving in the desert. We shared our food with you, 
and led you safe to the Chosen Valley, gave you a goodly share of land, and allowed you to wax rich under our protection. Is this not so? It is so, answered John Ferrier. In return for all this we asked but one condition, that was, that you should embrace the true faith and conform in every way to its usages. This you promised to do, and this, if common report says truly, you have neglected. And how have I neglected it? asked Ferrier, throwing out his hands in expostulation. Have I not given to the common fund? Have I not attended at the temple? Have I not— Where are your wives? asked Young, looking round him. Call them in, that I may greet them. It is true that I have not married, Ferrier answered, but women were few, and there were many who had better claims than I. I was not a lonely man. I had my daughter to attend to my wants. It is of that daughter that I would speak to you, said the leader of the Mormons. She has grown to be the flower of Utah, and has found favor in the eyes of many who are high in the land. John Ferrier groaned internally. There are stories of her which I would fain disbelieve. "'stories that she is sealed to some Gentile. "'This must be the gossip of idle tongues. "'What is the thirteenth rule in the code "'of the saint to Joseph Smith? "'Let every maiden of the true faith "'marry one of the elect, "'for if she wed a Gentile, "'she commits a grievous sin. "'This being so, "'it is impossible that you, "'who profess the holy creed, "'should suffer your daughter to violate it.' "'John Ferrier made no answer, "'but he played nervously with his riding-whip. Upon this one point your whole faith shall be tested. So it has been decided in the sacred council of four. The girl is young, and we would not have her wed gray hairs. Neither would we deprive her of all choice. We elders have many wives, but our children must also be provided. Stangerson has a son, and Drebber has a son, and either of them would gladly welcome your daughter to their house. Let her choose between them. They are young and rich and of the true faith. What say you to that? Ferry remained silent for some little time with his brows knitted. You will give us time, he said at last. My daughter is very young. She is scarce of an age to marry. She shall have a month to choose, said Young, rising from his seat. At the end of that time, she shall give her answer. He was passing through the door when he turned with flushed face and flashing eyes. It were better for you, John Ferrier, he thundered, that you and she were now lying blanched skeletons upon the Sierra Blanco, than that you should put your weak wills against the orders of the Holy Four. With a threatening gesture of his hand, he turned from the door, and Ferrier heard his heavy steps scrunching along the shingly path. He was still sitting with his elbows upon his knees, considering how he should broach the matter to his daughter, when a soft hand was laid upon his, and looking up, he saw her standing beside him. One glance at her pale, frightened face showed him that she had overheard everything that had passed. "'I could not help it,' she said, in answer to his look. His voice rang through the house. "'Oh, Father, what shall we do?' "'Don't you scare yourself,' he answered, drawing her to him and passing his broad, rough hand caressingly over her chestnut hair. "'We'll fix it up somehow or another.' "'You don't find your fancy kind of lusting for this chap, do you?' "'A sob and a squeeze of his hand was her only answer. "'No, of course not. "'I shouldn't care to hear you say you did. "'He's a likely lad, 
and he's a Christian, which is more than these folk here, in spite of all their praying and preaching, are. There's a party starting for Nevada tomorrow, and I'll manage to send him a message letting him know the hole we're in. If I know anything of that young man, he'll be back here with a speed that would whip electrotelegraphs. Lucy laughed through her tears at her father's description. When he comes, he'll advise us for the best. But it is for you that I'm frightened here. One hears. One hears such dreadful stories about those who oppose the prophet. Something terrible always happens to them. But we haven't opposed him yet, her father answered. It will be time to look out for squalls when we do. We have a clear month before us. At the end of that, I guess we'd better shin out of Utah. Leave Utah? That's about the size of it. But the farm? We will raise as much as we can in money and let the rest go. To tell the truth, Lucy, it isn't the first time I've thought of doing it. I don't care about knuckling under to any man, as these folk do to their darn prophet. I'm a free-born American, and it's all new to me. I guess I'm too old to learn. If he comes browsing about this farm, he might chance to run up against a charge of buckshot traveling in the opposite direction. But they won't let us leave, his daughter objected. Wait till Jefferson comes, and we'll soon manage that. In the meantime, don't you fret yourself, my dearie, and don't get your eyes swelled up, else he'll be walking into me when he sees you. There's nothing to be afeard about, and there's no danger at all. John Ferrier uttered these consoling remarks in a very confident tone, but she could not help observing that he paid unusual care to the fastening of the doors that night, and that he carefully cleaned and loaded the rusty old shotgun which hung upon the wall of his bedroom. Join us next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for Chapters 4 and 5 in Part 2 of A Study in Scarlet by Arthur Conan Doyle. If you enjoy our show and you enjoy our work, please do take a moment and join us at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. For about the cost of a cup of blended coffee per month, you can help to support 1001 Stories Network. And we appreciate that support very much. So take a moment and visit us there. Meanwhile, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Thank you for joining us. Please share our show with others. And please take a moment, if you enjoy our show, to leave us a review. Everyone stay safe. We'll see you then.